culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ember Sadat. Join me and my co-host, Ace Deliri, as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Hi, James. Welcome to Risky Conversations. Please introduce yourself to our audience and we can get started. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. And it's a really nice, honorable, I feel great to be on the show. And uh, I, let's see, I just turned 40. I've been trading for 16 years, roughly. Uh, I trade options now full time. I used to trade futures. And uh, that got kind of harder and harder with the rise of electronic trading. And I kind of got into the business because my dad, uh, he was a member of the Chicago Board of Trade for, uh, well, he's still a member now, but he started there in the late 70s. And that's how I kind of got into the business. Um, but from the university standpoint, I, I wasn't. Uh, I didn't really go to school for trading or finance or anything, so I was kind of uh, not using what I learned at school. <laughs> okay. okay, no worries, no worries. So, what did you go to school for? I was uh, I was just a, a liberal arts major. Uh, I went to a school called Villanova uh, in Philadelphia, and uh, I just studied history and political science. So, I don't have a, a technical background at all, but I'm trying okay. to get. I'm trying to get a little more, uh, trying to improve that a little bit in my free time. So no worries. So, so for those of us who don't know, what exactly is the Chicago Board of Trade, and what exactly is well, the uh, Chicago? Okay, so if you New York is was always sort of known for like uh, for stocks, you know, the New York Exchange and stuff like that. But then uh, I believe, you know, in the '70s is sort of when the government government and you know these contracts, derivative contracts, futures came around. And so the Chicago exchanges, um, which specialize in futures, they kind of uh, took off more. And, you know, they have a lot of contracts for like, you know, agricultural stuff. And then, you know, the big one, of course, was bond trading because the market is just so massive. So once you introduced uh, uh, treasury bonds into the system, it just kind of exploded. And then mm -hmm. I think in the 90s, when uh, the S&P futures contract really took off, especially when this, we had a big bull market, you know, in the in the 90s around the world, especially tech stocks, and that kind of flourished then too. So I think it sort of took, um, you know, a lot of the bigger speculators in the world, you know, they, you know, they were never really stock traders or currency traders or they're, you know, Futures traders of that would be like George Soros or Paul Tudor Jones or any of those big names. So um, they were always kind of doing business at the Chicago exchanges, CME or the Chicago Board of Trade, and they've merged now. So okay, yeah, okay. So for our listeners, uh, what is the difference between a future and an option? Well, if you, well, it's a technical. You know, an option, an option is essentially insurance. You know, if you want to buy insurance, uh, you know to protect yourself from a rise or a fall in the price, you can do that with an option. And, you know, they uh, vary. The prices depend on how far away they are from the, at the money, which is essentially like the current stock price. And um, it's, you know, it's fairly complicated stuff because there's 
several different components to, uh, you know, pricing them. And, you know, there's the Greek, so it's like Delta, Theta, Gamma, Vega, uh, and they all kind of uh, inter- they all kind of work together. And uh, that's how you, uh, you know, kind of determine a price. And uh, it, it's, it's complicated. So anyway, mm-hmm. that, that's, just, that's just that's just like the brief rundown. But think of the terms of insurance. It's like, okay, if I own Apple and Apple is $200, but I'm worried that Apple is going to decline to $180, you can say, you can go online and say, okay, I can buy a put uh, for, you know, four dollars or something and uh at, at at the price of 180 dollars so you pay a premium which is four dollars for it and if the market you know if it goes down and it goes down it goes down without a lot of time passing then you should make money and protect yourself against uh you know a price decline okay perfect all right so um what made you switch from uh trading futures to switching to options like what was what was your besides the computer because you stated that it was the algorithms and the computers trading and whatnot. Yeah, right. But I imagine they're they're in both markets, are they not? Or or yeah, did they leave yeah, one side they, alone? They, they are. It's just gotten more difficult. And um and to be honest too, I've got more interest in options, especially from uh, learning a lot of uh, Nassim's work. And I've really mm. been interested like in the tail, which is a complicated thing, but it's essentially like you're making a bet with something called the fourth moment, which is the kurtosis of a distribution, and it's sort of um, you know, if you draw a probability distribution, you know, you can, you know, a lot of them, they would look like a bell curve, but, you know, in the stocks, they don't quite look like that. The reality is they have a tail that can go on for a mile. So these options, um, you know, they're way out of the money and you kind of buy them and you kind of hope for uh, a very big move. And these happen pretty rarely, but not as rarely as the a lot of the models say they would have. So that's kind of what I've been interested in, but it's, uh, the learning curve has been kind of steep. And I'm, while I understand, I think 80% of it, I think some of the, some small parts of it, I'm still kind of learning. So that's, that's been something I've really been interested in. So. Okay. So, so for our listeners, again, um, uh, one of the things that we really focused on with regards to this, uh, to this risky conversation series is we really want them to learn and, and to have an idea of what it is people are talking about. So would you mind going into the concept of what is kurtosis? What are these first moment, second moment, third moment, uh, uh, concepts? Because they hear these terms and they have no idea what they're referencing. So, so for somebody who's involved in it, please so, elaborate. So if you build, um, if you build a, a distribution, there's, you know, the mean, the standard deviation, uh, the skew, and the kurtosis. So these are the four components that would make up like a like a probability distribution. And so okay. essentially, you're taking a bunch of values, you're trying to establish a mean, and then you're trying to establish a distribution, and then a skew is something um, is is essentially like how far uh, trying to de- determine how far. The market might be well. It's essentially looking at distribution and saying it's not a bell curve. Like there's one side of it has a lot more room than the other, and then the kurtosis is uh, sort of maps in with that too. We are trying to say um, how much how much of the contribution you know away from the mean is um, is coming from these tails. Like the tails explain much more of the distribution than you know the average mean so it's i don't know it's it's technical stuff but that's mm. and it's and so if you think about it in probability 
or, or like in statistics, a lot of times, like, you know, we don't really know the true distribution. So it's like, you know, we're estimating them. So it's like, you know, in statistics, say you have, oh, you have a population, but, you know, we don't really have a population, anything. So we sort of have a, a sample size. So we're right. trying to samples and say, okay, well, the stock moves, you know, it's 20 day volatility is 2%. And then you try and extrapolate and say, well, okay, what, you know, what are the odds or probability that, you know, loses 50% or something? We can't, we don't really know how to do that. You know what I mean? Because right. we don't really have right. enough data, but we just try and estimate that. So that's kind of, and that's pretty standard, I think, with all statistics, where you don't really, you don't really ever know uh, the true population. You you just take, you, know, you use some stuff to estimate it and you try and go from there. Okay, perfect. So I just wanted to follow up with this on a few fr- on a few fronts. So for me, uh, I, I don't I don't play in these areas. So I, I'm just an outside observer, just 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 um, pointing out some things. The way I see it is as follows. And tell me if I'm wrong, because uh, because what it is is the people who uh, are engaged in a specific business. There are other people watching this and saying, I'm going to make a market for this business to predict whether it's going to go up or down. For example, oil, right? Everybody understands mm-hmm. the price of oil because the price of gas reflects in everybody's dollar. So we can all see it. Whenever we hear on the news that, oh, oil prices have gone up to $10 a barrel more, we all know, oh, my God, my you know price of gas next week is going to be crazy. So mm-hmm. in a way, we're trying to relay the information from that level, bringing it down to the average person. But So here, here's where, I, where I'm trying to get a real grasp of some of the nitty-gritty details of it. So mm-hmm. people like yourselves and people who are engaged in um, trying to look at things from a, uh, a fat tail distribution, i.e. there is no – there's almost infinite variance because uh, the tail just yeah. keeps going. And you can right. have you know, uh, 15 standard deviation, 6 standard deviation, whatever right. can happen at the end is there, right? But, mm-hmm. so, but, but you can't price something like that if you're selling it. So you have to assume it's normally distributed so you can actually price it to the point where you can say, okay, I can price this because I see that this can be something that I can package. You come along and you look at that and you go, this model is incorrect for this particular uh, commodity, whether it be you know uh, a stock or whatnot. And mm-hmm. because it's incorrectly priced, I can benefit off of it from profiting because I know that this is incorrectly done. But if they yeah. were to price it correctly, they would never be able to do that because it's infinite in terms of its variance, correct? Right. So, yeah, I mean, and that's the thing is like you, you see from like the model, like Black-Scholes, I think it serves telling you that like, options around the money are kind of overpriced and then you get into the tails and no one knows exactly how to price them. So obviously if you are selling them, you know, you got to be really, really careful. And I'm sure, you know, we see over time that, you know, firms obviously, you know, do that. But then like one day, if you have a big move, you know, a bunch of them just go bankrupt, uh, you know, almost overnight. And I think we've had that. I remember when the Swiss Frank had a really big move a couple of years ago. And then all of a sudden there's all these stories about some brokerages just going belly up and they're probably on the other side of that. And they, you know, literally would have disappeared that day. So, you know, cause they were just, you know, the amount of print, the amount, you know, you would have, they would have lost, you know, maybe 10, 20,000. I don't even know more than that of, of their, whatever they're doing and selling. So it's a huge amount of money. Huge. All right. So why do you think these banks take a risk if it's known that they can go bankrupt? Well, I don't I don't I don't I'm sure some of them don't know that they can go bankrupt and they do it anyway. And also, and this is a good thing to to talk about um, anyway, is that, you know, there's a lot of I think there's a lot of agency problems in, you know, the world, too, you know, and especially in banking, which has the worst agency problem where it's just, you know, essentially you're being backed by a taxpayer 
And the government is just, you know, hell, hell bent on never letting a bank uh, fall into some sort of bankruptcy because, you know, they're so worried it's going to, you know, blow up the system. So what they do is they, they really are in the business of sort of betting against low probability events. And, you know, it pays to do that because they, you know, we don't have a lot of crises very often. You know, crises are pretty rare. So, you know, maybe every 10, 15 years, we have something really, really bad. But that's enough if you're in that business to say, if I'm a man, you know, you know, making a lot of money, they just say, well, hey, I can get out of here if I've made five million dollars. You know, I'm going to retire and I stuff all these risks to the next guy, you know, because there's no um, there's no recourse or really clawing anybody's money back. At least, you know, there, there may be some little bit more now, but, you know, there certainly wasn't 10 years ago. We had a financial crisis and we were just kind of kind of left. So I uh, remember when uh, I don't know if you ever you know, read about when you see talk about how there was, you know, the Bob Rubin trade where it was like Bob Rubin made a hundred million dollars from Citibank. You know, why he was there, retired, and the bank went bankrupt. And then, you know, he, he's, you know, the, he didn't have any, no one called him for any money back. You know what I mean? So, right. So right. it's a pretty good deal. And you just call up the ta- call up the government and the government says, oh, no problem. We'll, uh, we'll be happy to donate, you know, trillions of dollars worth of taxpayer money towards any bank. So that's mm-hmm. just a, it's an insidious, it's a really bad system. And, you know, we haven't really probably done. We've done some stuff to maybe mitigate some of these problems, I would imagine. But I still think there's probably a, a lot of this moral hazard kind of play where, you know, I'm going to take the upside and then somebody else takes the downside. So that's that's it. Right, right, right. So is this like partying on the Titanic and leaving before it crashes? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. You're like, I, I'm and and and. and we also, yes, I think that's exactly correct. And it's like we even see this, I think, at the political level, too, or not the political level, in politics where, you know, politicians are sort of incentivized to uh, spend, you know, other people's money and future generations' money. And they're just not, you know, accountable. You know, mm-hmm. I, like I live in Chicago and, you know, the fiscal situation here is just horrendous. And it's obviously yeah. been uh, it's been created by a system, you know, decades of politicians just, you know, promising more and more future, you know, tax dollars to, um, you know, get reelected, you know, and then they, you know, they stick around for maybe 10 years. But the legacy of their policies, you know, the, the amount of money that's owed is just put constantly being piled up um, to the future. And so now we're in a situation here where, you know, it's we've had a bad situation, but as far as, you know, we can see, you know, it looks to me like the next couple of decades, you know, if you're in Illinois and especially Chicago, it's like you're, you're going to be taxed literally forever at a pace that uh, people have not seen, I think, you know, in a long time or ever, you know, really, really, you know, high rates or stuff is just, you know, they're looking for taxes on anything. So right. it's a it's a major problem <laughs> and it's it's yeah. growing every day, too. You know, so what's interesting about that is like um, I tried to look at the uh, the market in a, in a particular way. That's like imagine if the market is closed, right? So if, if there's a closed loop system, um, the taxpayer uh, who cuts haircuts, uh, gives haircuts, and, and does some plumbing work, he works and he gets taxed. That money goes to the politician who promises it to go to some union uh, uh, based job that's going to rebuild the bridge. The money is sort of being recycled back in, right? So in a way. 
the net loss of that shouldn't be too drastically high. Obviously, it's an inefficient allocation of resources, so you're going to have losses. But it's because it's sort of a closed-loop system, you're more likely to see um, at least some of the benefit come back. However, given the way that the United States is and how easy it is to move funds around, um, what I'm what I'm starting to see, and I'm, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, the misallocation of resources is almost compounded by the fact that the people who are being taxed just decided, you know what, I'm leaving. Like for example, I just read Governor Cuomo in New York was mm. freaking out because all the wealthy people from New York are basically just leaving, and so he's right. saying, I have no more, no more, no, nobody else I can tax, and if I do more taxes, I'm just going to you know, have no funds left over to make all these promises. So the question is, wh- why Why are these ideas that it, it seems very common sense, right? Like if you tax people and you don't uh, deliver value, there's nothing inherently wrong with taxing sure. or not taxing. Sure. There's just wrong with the inefficiency of spending it, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think one of the other things, too, is we're seeing with, uh, with taxes and all the other and inefficiency of spending is that it – I think it maybe works better in like smaller states, you know what I mean, where stuff's just right. more and like like if you look at I think the way I understand like the Nordic states like you know Norway and Sweden and stuff they have high tax rates, but you know these are you know countries that have I don't know 10 million people something like that, so it's so much more confined that you can probably uh, have a much better understanding about what's going on, you know where the money is going, you know, and, and it's easy to determine if it's being well spent. But you get into something like the U.S. Or, you know, you get into like the population is so much larger and, you know, there's so many more confusing ways to, you know, hide stuff. And it's just more and more difficult to determine what exactly is going on. So it's like a scale. It's a scale issue. And, you know, it's like the same thing, I think, with Singapore, where they have a really small population, too. And we kind of view it in the West as like authoritarian to a certain extent because it seems like they don't have as much freedom. But the bottom line is it's so much smaller that um, mm. you know they they can do things in a little bit different way just because it's mm. you know and so it's just you know uh, or or it's like the Soviet Union you know it's like oh communism but it's like well maybe we could say that communism maybe works really well with like a small area you know what I mean but like if you were the Soviet Union or something this just massive massive you know huge geographical place and you know you just can't you know you can't work like that so it's I think that's, you know, important to think about how, you know, what are the properties of stuff before you just say, oh, this or that won't work. Yeah. You know what? I, I had an interesting uh, way to sort of visualize that scale for most people, right? Because when you hear, oh, we're, you know, the market lost a trillion dollars, the average person, I, I don't even know. If, I don't even know if not the average person could really fathom what a trillion dollar evaporation feels like or looks like yeah. or when they say billions of dollars have been funded. What? Yeah, right. go ahead. yeah. So no. So the way the way I was trying to explain it to people, I said, okay, imagine it this way. Right? So you're a, a married couple, and you have energy and funds and capabilities. So you bring a child into this world, and all of a sudden, your energy and your funds are cut in half because now you have to devote your resources. Hopefully, if you're a good parent, to this child, right. and you lose sleep and all that stuff, and so it compounds itself around you because now you're more tired, you're more, you know, all that stuff. And then you bring a second child into it. The second child is not twice the effort; it's almost four times the effort. Because now that second child is going to take half of what you started with, not with what you originally had, but half of what you started with after the first child came. So on yeah. a scale aspect of it, it's you're not you're not just you know twice as tired as you were when you had your first child. You're four times as tired because they're literally yeah. dividing up whatever little resources you have left right. in terms of sleep and, and money and, and attention to to that much more. So in a way, 
people, uh, like I try to explain that to them. I'm like, look, when you scale things out and you say, okay, I want to give somebody something for free. Everybody deserves quote unquote free education. You start to think about that and you go, okay, well, how many people can you give that to before it's unsustainable? Right. And then, so that's where, that's where the scaling issue, I think where people really have a difficult time is connecting the dots between what it means to give something and what that means to give that to everybody. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. And, uh, I do, I, I agree with you. And I do wonder if, um, you know, we are seeing around the West of like fertility rates have really declined, uh, dramatically over the last like 30 years. And, you know, we don't, I don't think anybody really knows the, knows the causes, but, you know, mm-hmm. you do wonder if at some level people's just resources for the average person, middle mm-hmm. class or lower, are maybe just sort of tapped out financially and, um, yeah. you know, and, and time-wise, you know. And uh, I don't think that maybe explains all of it. Maybe it's an issue with birth control, too, where um, we've had more and more birth control and we're just mm-hmm. finding, you know, the effects of it decades later. But yeah. it, it kind of a it, – it's, you know, an eerie it, – it, it's – it's something we should probably worry about. You know, I don't think we want to see birth rates get so low that, you know, we're become Japan or, or any, but you know, they, but it's just so obvious. Like I think in every place like us and Western Europe, I don't know about Canada, but it's probably hmm. not that much different either, but you know, Hey, it's like our people just, they're, you know, you know if, you're, if you're a younger person now too, I think all the place, you know, if you want to have a family, you're also contending with, you know, you owe a lot of uh, money for student loans and that's, yep. a, uh, you know, a real crimp on your lifestyle. And if yep. you want a child, I mean, think about it. It's just, you know, it, it can be daunting and, you know, it, you know, that's life. Fortunately, we have a, we have, we have a wonderful habit of accidentally having children too. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> It kind of balances it out. Yeah, yeah. so it's like I, I, uh, I don't know if we'll ever, you know, that, that that's maybe, maybe that's a good thing right now. So, well, you know, you know, it's interesting about that because we we discuss these issues um, all the time, and one of the things like we always kind of come back to is let's just look at the logic of a certain number of things that have happened. I.e., um, when uh, you know, if you go back 50, 60 years ago, or maybe even further back, women didn't work as much and they stayed at home. Which right. meant that the labor pool was smaller, so whatever positions right. were available had to be paid more for. But then almost instantly, you double the labor force, which means you cut wages in half, which is good for the business because now they have more people they can uh, tap into. But that's bad for the people because what you were getting paid for for job A is now cut in half, which yeah. means you do need two incomes in the household just to pay the bills and just to get the mortgage in and all the other stuff that goes with it. So in essence – your what what could have been like i know a lot of uh, uh folks who you know oh i bought this house you know uh, i worked in the, this company and when i was in, you know, in the 1960s and whatnot and i and i own the house and today it's like i know people who have two ah. incomes and they can barely pay yeah. rent for an apartment right yeah yeah so it, there, there are dynamics of that as well yeah and i think it's just um you know we i think what's gone on in the last you know three, four decades is like, you know, globalization has probably been great. It's great for corporations and the super wealthy. And, um, you know, we're seeing labor, uh, labor share like at home in their home countries really decline. Um, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like, you know, it's like this one thing that Trump sort of picks up on. He's like, well, he looks at China and says, well, they've, you know, kind of stealing our wages. And that's not really maybe an accurate way of looking at it, but you know, mm-hmm. there's no doubt that, you know, manufacturing has gone to, um, you know, lower income places and, 
you know, and, and now some of that feeds back into all of our economies because we get cheaper stuff. Right. But I think that there is like obviously has been a squeeze on people's incomes. And it is, it is like you said, it, you know, we seem to be have people that, you know, just the basics, I think, are really, you know, are harder and harder to get. And you read about like yeah. the, when you read about the 1950s, like you said, or, you know, 60s in the U.S. or, you know, all you know, similar places, it does sort of, uh, you know, I'm fairly familiar with the history of the period. It does sort of seem almost like a halcyon period or something and you know where mom stayed at home all the time and dad you know had enough money to kind of just get everything going and you know and now that world is just you know really just gone you know so it's you know what's interesting about that aspect of it and of course i mean people listening to this will have areas of disagreement and we do want to cover some of them just because we want to look at this from multiple angles but the thing that's interesting about that is if you increase the labor pool to double Right. And, and there's an employer who's looking to hire. One of the things they could do is now is they could put arbitrary requirements as to what's needed to get that job. I, or you need a degree. All of a sudden, the people who didn't go to school now have to go get a, get a degree, but then they can, move the, they can move the goalposts again and say, Oh, we need a master's degree. So all of a sudden, the boom in the uh, world of academia starts to take off because now they're able to say, Hey, if you don't have a degree, you can't get a job. Cause I remember when I was in high school, Every single conversation with everybody I had, and they were like, Ace, you know, you're a relatively bright kid, you know, and you do some dumb stuff, but you're still uh, relatively smart. Make sure you get into university, right? And I didn't know any better because, you know, I was just a kid. And right. that was like, there was never a single person who said, Hey, figure out a way to actually, you know, find a way to increase value for other people and then capture a slice of that for yourself and don't get into unnecessary debt and don't, don't do this and don't do that. But that, that conversation never happened. It was always, Make sure you go to university. And they don't bring the conversation up about how much university costs. And, oh, don't worry, there's loans for that. You can take the loans. And I'm like, okay, that's great. But you do that for two generations. And all of a sudden, yeah, the labor pool is now, not only is it doubled, but it's doubled with people saddled with debt with degrees that they can't really add value with. Because as soon as you show up to a company and say, hey, I have this degree in field X, they go, that's great. We need a coffee server. Go over there, <laughs> fill out an application. So now the low-paying job that you do have that you're supposed to start a life with is now being funding, uh, paying back a degree that's clearly got no value in the marketplace, right? So there's a lot of vicious negative cycles that are all plugged in at various levels that are just leeching. Uh, and it's, I guess, in the same uh, term for this was rent seeking. There's a lot of rent seeking happening here. Yeah. And, and this, in the student loan market, too, is not, uh, you know, it's all funded by the government. So it's not really a marketplace that's subjected to uh, market forces. So, you, know, you could probably make the case that there was more free markets for interest rates for student loans that, you know, that the, probably the price of going to school or the, the the ability to borrow would probably be at much higher rates because just what's going on is that the return from the university or, the, you know, the loans that we're making for people to go to school, they're just not really paying off. And instead, it's subsidized by the government. So now you have this just massively, massively, you know, weird system where student debt's just ballooning like crazy. It's uh, a lot of, you know, people, the right people aren't holding the risk uh, for it. And then we're just seeing, you know, the degrees from the university just, you know, not worth anything. And there's no... Um, and, and the system's so stodgy where, you know, you don't even have a situation now where, you know, if you looked at the average, like, say you're an engineer and, you know, or a math person or STEM person, you can kind of tell that uh, usually you have a higher starting salary uh, mm. 
than, you know, if you were, you know, a liberal arts major. But, you know, we don't even see differences in the price of degrees. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, so, yes. So it hasn't, which is insane because you're just like, right. how is not even involved? Like, this would be, even yeah. before you got rid of, like, student loans, you would think that system would sort, sort of being involved and saying, okay, well, if you're going to be an English major, it's probably should be 30, you know, percent less than if you're going to be a biology or something like that. Because you're just not, you're not going to get the return out of school, you know, should... But we're, you know, we can't, you know, we can't seem to really get there um, until it blows up. And at some point, I think, you know, there'll be some sort of a blow up at, with student loans and, you know, and I don't know, we'll figure out a, another way. And that's probably a big that's something Silicon Valley can probably do, figure out, you know, better and cheaper, you know, education alternatives. And, right. right. I don't know. Well, you I, know, what's I, interesting. Yeah, go ahead. No, what's interesting on that, to, to, to build up on that, is, is twofold, right? One, uh, you hit the nail on the head with regards to costs, right? So why should your degree in uh, studying English literature be the same as if you're studying math? But second of all, why is the timeline the same? Why do you need four years for both, right? Yeah, so that's a compounding effect of, of you're losing money because you're not working, and you're paying, you're, you're getting a loan for something. like It's like you go to the Apple store and you say, you know, the iPad mini and the Mac Pro are exactly the same price. Uh, it's fair if you're buying a Mac Pro, but it's a ripoff if you're buying the uh, the iPad Mini, right? So in essence, the 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 people who are buying the um uh, getting the STEM degrees are in essence sort of funding the people, uh, sorry, not funding, attracting the people who are coming in uh, who are you know getting these degrees in, in fields that have no real you know outside world value, and those yeah. people are essentially funding the university's administrative staff, right? Because let's be honest, you don't need four years to right. study. Uh, some of these degrees that they're offering. I'm not, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, there's individual people who are fantastic in every particular uh, field, but the field itself in general, yeah, uh, more, I don't think it generates that, more noise. Yeah, I wouldn't say, I, I don't, I, I'm not the kind of person that would say, oh, don't ever become an English major if that's what you want to do or anything like that. Right, but, right. You know, so the price of, because, uh, you know, obviously not everyone wants to be a math or science. Major. Right. But I think the, what are the the other, the other interesting thing, too, is like I've seen, uh, you know, like requirements, like you said, we we're talking about more and more requirements for stuff. And, you know, why can't like if you went to high school and you had decent uh, test scores, like why couldn't you just maybe go to one sort of one more year of like a, a prep course or something and then go to law school? I mean, I, I don't you know right. what I mean? Like, like why would right. you need like why would you need to attend four years of a, of a university and then go to law school? You're. By the time you're 20 years old, you're probably going to have most of the skills you need to go to law school. You know, you can read and you start and you write better and all that other stuff. And right. I don't think you can do that. And and I've noticed too when you were taking um, the the CFA exam, which is like an exam for finance and it's a well-known one. I think there was a time where maybe you didn't even have to go to college and you could take mm. it and get it. And I think mm. now you have to go. But in my mind, I just think you know, hey. You know, if you're smart enough to go to high school and maybe have, you know, one year or something and you could pass the CFA exam, I mean, I would think you're probably fairly with it. You know what I mean? Right. You don't oh, really need to go to uh, four years of college to do that. And instead, it's just like you said, you're just, you know, tacking on more and more credentials and you're tacking on more and more exams that I think we all know exams are sort of. Uh, their their power, you know, their ability to really help you on a day to day basis in a job. Mm. 
it get, becomes very limited very fast, you know, for most, for most people, you know, you, you, you just, you know, the real world, the real world is a real world and the world of exams is a world of exams. And oh, yeah. Yeah. they have some, they have some overlapping, but you know, you know, you take an exam and you study for months for it or something or credential and then you maybe you get a job because of it. But then, you know, six months later, you realize 95% of what you learn, you're not using and you don't remember. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, it's interesting about that. And, and, and here's, here's where I tie into that in, in, in regards to, I think one of the, the aspects they tried to use with regards to quote unquote taking more classes is they wanted to use time as a filter. So mm-hmm. they say, oh, you know what? You're not really cut out for this job or whatever. But the thing is, it's like, well, we want people to fail fast. We don't want them to fail slow because then you could discover what they're good at a lot quicker. And so one of the things that I would recommend in that particular instance is like when I teach people how to code and I, and I always do that, I'm like, look, you don't need to learn everything about this particular programming language. What you need to learn is what is the 20% of it that you need to know absolutely so you could do 80% of the job in the real world. And that's, that's right. what's key, right? And that, that gives yeah. you the leverage to know whether, hey, first of all, maybe this isn't even for you, right? Like I know people who became lawyers and didn't want to do practice law. They're like, I went through law school. I did the bar exam. I, I went work for, for a year. And I hated it. And I'm like, okay, that's a long time to learn a lesson that could have been learned instantly where if you, like you stated, imagine you graduate high school and you, you decide you want to be a lawyer. So they say, okay, here's an apprenticeship program. It's one year long. You get to become a, a person who basically follows a lawyer throughout their day and they give you some menial jobs, but while you're just on the job, quote unquote, learning and you get to see what it's all about. You get to see all the long hours. You get to see all the, 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 the stuff that you, you may not necessarily be exposed to. And you yeah. realize real quick, I don't want to do this, right? That's much better to, to, to filter as, as, a, as, a, as a mechanism than it is to go through four years of a degree and then whatever, I think it's two years for law school or, and then one year of articling and all that. And you just say, look how much time I could save you if we can just show you that maybe this is the life you don't really necessarily want, right? Well, yeah, and I think that's important. And we, and it's in, in the U.S., it's, all, it's almost like we, it's so much more difficult to do that now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like you read about the way I understand, you know, Germany, like they have a much, more, much better apprenticeship, apprenticeship kind of program, you know, so mm-hmm. that, you know, is something we should probably do here and mm-hmm. just get people, you know, it's like, hey, let's get involved in the real world for six months a year and, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe add some school, you know, on top of it, because I, I, I actually I understand completely what you're saying about law school. My brother uh, went to a top tier law school. And uh, he played college football in undergrad, and he started mm. doing some college football coaching while he was in law school. And then he left law school and wanted to become a college football coach. <laughs> right, so, right. You know, uh, it, it did not work out. Uh, and he ended up becoming an attorney, but it was kind of caused a little bit of a mini crisis in our, uh, our in our family. Uh, uh, but I can kind of, you know, I'm. I'm I get what you're saying. It's just like, oh, we went through all this law school, and then he's like, no, but now my true passion is I want to be a college <laughs> But it's, you know, it, it it was unrealistic. But you know, you, you just right, you want to avoid that kind of stuff where you spend, you know, three years going to law school, and then you realize like, oh my god, I might get hired, and I'll be stuck in this giant, you know, you know, bold bracket, you know, bureaucratic firm that. You know, everybody's just, you know, backstabbing each other or whatever they're doing. And, you know, right. that, you know, that is the reality a lot of times in those places. And, you know, it just becomes really less appealing once you really put your mind, think about it. So, uh, right. And the other aspect of it that's crazy about that is now it's a sunk cost variable, right? Because you look at that and you go, wait a minute, I already spent 10 years yeah. doing this, right? I hate this. 
but now I have to pay back this insane amount of money to yeah. at least be able to get back into a normal rhythm for life. So, so it creates sort of bitter, uh, people too, in the sense that now you've created the system. And I think the problem we really have with it is not so much the education. We love the idea of education. I think the problem we have is the idea of formal, standardized, systematic education, which puts a lot of restrictions in place. And the restrictions have a lot of unintended consequences. And so yeah. the people who, who tend to defend those systems, maybe they look at this slice of the pie where it's like, oh, look, this many people have gone through and, and you know, here's what they've done. But then we always look at the other aspect of it as we say, look, um, the problem with any kind of formal education or any kind of test is that it, it tests you based on past knowledge, right? There's, there's a right answer to this question. Please write it as you see fit. And you can go to English, uh, you can go get a degree in English literature from Oxford and listen to the great, uh, ex- explanations of, you know, Shakespeare's works and all that. But that doesn't mean they're going to be like, well, now you can write the next book that's going to be studied for the next 400 years. Right. right. And, and, and compound that with the fact that we look at the world and we say, you know, you talk to kids these days, oh, I'm going to this university, I'm going to that university, and there's this level of pride and enthusiasm, which is good. But then, you know, I always ask one simple question. I'm like, how do you think the world ever did before universities were a thing? Well, I, just kind of- <laughs> I would say probably in some sense we were doing better, you know what I mean? But Right. You know, because, you know, if you think about it, what's the best school? I would say the best form of school is the real world and the school yep. of hard knocks, you know what I mean? Yep, of course. And, and and you could probably make the case that, you know, if borrowing costs or student loans were higher and maybe mm. some people forego, did forego going to school and it was just like, no, I'm not going. I'm going mm. to work anywhere. You know, we might actually be better off. It just sort of looks it looks scary from, you know, uh, you know, from a 10,000 foot level when you say stuff like that. But, yeah. You know, I think that's pro- there's probably more to that than people think. And you're like, once the mindset develops, says now it's expensive. Maybe I'll do some school school on the side. But you know, the reality is, I just want to be embedded like in the workforce in some capacity. Um, you know, and and you know, and, and then it becomes easier if sort of the borrowing costs, like to borrow to go to school, maybe becomes high high enough that you just say screw it you know what i mean but right but right now it's just sort of you know if you want to go to school you can get the biggest pot of money you can imagine probably to do it so Mm. it's just yeah but i don't know i I think that's there's probably some real truth of that just getting into the real world and you know just try not to be school focused and you know and and like remember in the i mean the u.s i you know people really weren't going to college in the u.s until what maybe the mid 70s you know before yeah. and then you know obviously since then is when college is really really picked up but you know there's a lot of people you know there were a lot more people you know 40 years ago 30 or 40 years ago that just didn't go to college and you know i don't you know i don't think you know their lives have been are terrible or anything you know i'm sure a lot of them found you know meaningful employment and they're okay yeah, it's it's the once once the politicians here, you know, the populace says we need school, we need school, and you know the politicians go we need school, and you know now we have this giant, you know, uh, school industry just like we like you know we needed houses, so we had a giant, you know, mortgage industry, you know, and we had and we kind of had some of those similar problems like well we'll just give everybody a house and let them borrow a lot of money to do it, and you know, kind of had a bunch of problems with that, so it's just you know. I guess uh, in some sense our political system listens, but we don't always uh, think through things uh, over the long term that well. 
Yeah, no, see, what I think what's happened here is there's been a co-opting of the term education uh, with schooling. And that's why you always hear, like, oh, you need to get an education. But for them, by 99% of the people, when you say you need to get an education, they assume it means you have to go to school, right? And I think the side of hand there is where the misleading and uh, rent-seeking really takes place because uh, wh- what you could do is you could say education can mean anything. Education just means the process of acquiring a new skill. And like you and I stated, you can acquire that skill by actually doing the job a lot better than you could by theoretically learning about the job, right? Right. And so I think what our boy, I think you and I, what it really boils down to is the cost benefit analysis of school. The, the schooling is okay as long as the costs are, saw, are, are within reach of a person being able to yeah. pay off their debts. Absolutely. But it's gotten so out of hand that it's basically a completely a, a null and void conversation to say, I don't even know how to start this. $100,000 in debt for a degree in yeah. pick major X, right? Unless you're doing something crazy good, you're not going to pay that off. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think that's. You know, it's a major, major issue. And the other problem is that, you know, once, you know, our, the, the politics get involved, it gets hard to, um, very hard to dislodge the system and force mm. it, you know, and remove the incentives. And because, like, we've seen government just, like, never wants to cut subsidies or cut, you know, things of out. Of course. Once they're course. there forever, even though they're not, what we're doing is not helping, it's arguably hurting. And mm-hmm. we just, you know, we can't seem to just, you know, roll stuff back, um, even though it would be a good idea. Because, you know, think about it, you know, the education industry in the U.S. is, you know, obviously with every kid enrolled and more money thrown at it, it gets even more political power. You know what I mean? They of course. Have more- they have more resources to go to Congress and just say, hey, you know, without us, the world will end. And that's, you know, I think what every industry does. It's like, well, you know, if this happens, the world's going to end. So don't cut us. And, you know, we, you know, we, uh, you know, can't do it. And then, you know, we just wind up in the, you know, just slowly going backwards. And I don't know what the solution is. It's, it, I mean, it, Maybe it'll fix itself, but it's just it, we wish it would fix itself sooner and not, you know, ten, you know, ten, twenty years in the future or whatever it is. So. Yeah, you know, you know what's scary about that? It's it's like there's this insidious layer that like you can kind of point out to, it. and I mean that in the following sense: if you were to go and you're like a 18, 17 year old kid, and you said you went to the bank and you said, hey, um, I have this idea for a fantastic business, blah blah blah, and you wanna, and you know, can I get a loan? They would kind of laugh you out of out of the park, but yeah. you can walk into the same bank and say, "Hey, uh, I need three hundred thousand dollar loan because I got into Harvard." And they would they would be fighting over who can sign that, that, that those papers for you fastest, right? Because yeah. there's a layer to that where they can say, "Hey, this is backed by the government, and the government is basically mandated by the taxpayer. The taxpayer has been lulled into assuming that education equals schooling, and therefore this vicious cycle creates itself." And the bank or whoever issues out these loans looks at that and says, "Well, here's a chance where I can." Uh, lend out money and the backer of it is the government who's prescribing these particular policies because there's subsidies built into all this meanwhile the kid who comes in and, and even after after the uh, the graduation if you want to if you need a loan for a business it's much 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 harder than it ever could be if you just said i need a bigger loan for my postgraduate studies in whatever field so there's this incentive built that artificially inflates the value of that which shouldn't be so heavily valued right and that's where i think our real problem comes into that is because we can look at those layers of the structure that it's built around and we could say, hey, the incentives are misaligned here. And as a consequence, we're detrimentally 
doing more damage to society than we are because look the kids uh, rates of depression and suicide and anxiety and all these other things are increasing at a time when wealth and prosperity is also increasing but yet there's such a massive disconnect in the, the inequality of wealth all these aspects if you tie all these things together you can kind of see pieces and pockets of it where it's like you know i look at it and i'm like okay I remind, i'm reminded of that incident where you know 15 people are are, are midgets but they're looking at pardon the term are tiny little people who are looking at elephant on the foot and on the trunk and the nose and the ears, and they can't tell what they're looking at. But once in a while, you get this little step back and see, oh, it's actually just an elephant in the room here. Um, you know, there's too many layers tied together, and there's too much. And, and I think the underlying assumption of all this is that we're perpetually going to grow the economy, and I don't yeah. think that's necessarily true. Sure, and, and if you think about it, it's a, sort of like, uh, you know, all the loans or debt we create is more or less a bet that the future is going to be better than the past. You know what I mean? Right. right. Because, you know, that's, that's the nature of the game. I mean, you know, and uh, like, you know, we saw this first, I think, you know, think about the housing bubble we had, which was almost in sunsets, so like not only American, but like almost global at least. And, you know, it's like, okay, well we can give you a mortgage loan for $400,000 because no problem you know, growth will be spectacular over the next 25 years and you'll have no problem repaying it. And that's, right. and that's the same thing we're, we're seeing in student loans. And, you know, we're still not really learning that, you know, we're, uh, it's really hard to forecast, you know, what you're, where you're going to be working, what your wages are going to be like, uh, what the economy will be look like, you know, even six months from now, you know what I mean? Like we just mm -hmm. don't, we don't really have a great handle that, on that kind of stuff, and uh, we're sort of not really learning. Um, some people are learning, and but you know, I think in some sense we aren't, and you know, we just don't live in a world where uh, you went to work for IBM for forty years and you got a gold a gold watch at the end, and your life was just sort of <laughs> stagnant. We, you know, like uh, didn't you say? I mean, you you you. Didn't you start out like, were you a trainer for a while and then you got into the song? I was. So, so exactly. I, Everyone's kind of had, you know, different, different things they've been doing. And I think that's the nature of the world, but it just sort of requires a more conservative mindset, I guess, against trying to borrow against your future self. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, right. and you think about it too, you know, once you sort of borrow against your future self, you sort of are using up people's balance sheets already. You know what I mean? They don't. Mm. There's only so much, you know, uh, capacity to expand your balance sheet before you're just sort of like, well, I can't, you know, take on any more liabilities. And I think it's sort of insidious that we sort of believe that, you know, like, like I think governments and uh, and especially economists, you know, they are just oblivious to this notion that, you know, the dangers of leverage and they seem to just actively encourage uh, the use of leverage as a weakness. Yes. As like a means to really uh, better ourselves, even though 99% of most individuals kind of get know the danger. You know what I mean? They're, but, right. you know, it's like the government or economists are like, no, no, it's like you, you can get a loan to go to school because this will lead to growth. But, you know, it's also just leading to huge amounts of debt everywhere. And mm -hmm. and and then you're already pressuring younger people who are like, oh, well, I'm really young, but now I'm already owed 
fifty thousand dollars or something. Well, this is an um, this is an uncomfortable feeling to uh, for most people. You know what I mean? And I think it causes a lot of anxiety and, like you said, depression and stuff like that. Where you know they're like, "Wow, I'm I'm already saddled with um, liabilities, and you know, how am I going to get these repaid?" And that's just a total failure of uh, leadership. And we have, you know, a bunch of knuckleheads that are, you know, haven't, uh, you know, been asked to step aside and sort of, you know, their ideas sort of been just taken out and shot or whatever, because, you know, they're not great ideas. And, you know, we just, I don't know, this is something about, you know, bad ideas sticking around longer than they should be. And we just don't, we can't seem to get rid of them like we would, uh, you know, if a corporation or someone just, you know, goes bankrupt or something because it's losing too much money. You know, we just, I don't know. It's just, we don't have that mechanism right now. So. You know, what's funny about that. A reminder of uh, our friend Joe Norman, uh, and he constantly talks about uh, boundaries against which our uh, assumptions are valid. And, mm-hmm. I, and, I, and I look at it in the following regard, right? So when you look at uh, pre-World War II, right, everybody was kind of in a similar boat all over the world. And then all of a sudden, there's this massive uplifting of like, you know, you have a washing machine, which to most people, a washing machine is a washing machine. But in actuality, I've washed, I wash clothes all the time. So I, I, I noticed this. The amount of time and effort it takes to wash those clothes, even with a machine, is ridiculous. Remove that machine and it's like a whole day of productivity is wasted. You have to plan for this. Oh, yeah. Go get, go get all these things. So the world started to notice the United States sort of uplifting at this trajectory that's really fast. And there was like, you know, the highways came into play, the cars came in. So the exchange for routes for markets to get the, the, the farmer's food out to the, to the, to the public. So there was less food wasted and it didn't go to, you know, it didn't spoil. All those benefits started to accrue really, really quickly. But what's mm-hmm. interesting is the population wasn't so big. So you started to notice a net boom a lot faster. And because of that boom, a lot more people came into, uh, you know, because we had more children and all these other things started to happen. And then the rest of the world wanted to sort of mimic those steps. Sure. Really I, you know what I mean? It's, it's like kind of threw everything off. Yeah, because I think almost like capital is like all multiply, you know, it like sort of multiplies, you know. Right. Like, like you know, it's not a, 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 it's like a system that sort of you feed one put input in and that comes back out as more output, you know, every time you feed it right. back in. And right. that's, I think that's exactly kind of, so it just proves that it, the system is just like, you know, there's a lot of dependencies and, you know, uh, just, stuff like that feedback loops that sort of power uh the economy and it's crazy to watch and you're right you have one a couple hits and then like you know the productivity goes up and then people can have more children and then the population gets larger and then with a larger population you know we have arguably um more minds to sort of solve more problems you know usually you know of course we create we create (laughs) we create more of them too but you know of course but but i think that's i don't know like I should listen to Joe. I, I I listened a little bit of Michael and Jeffers' uh, podcast, and I didn't have time for everything. But I wish I had had a chance to listen to Joe. So at some point I'll get in there because complexity science is uh, it's interesting stuff, and I sort of get the uh, the basics of it. But uh, I don't know. It's like the new emerging field, right? It's just right. like everything. Uh, Everything is supposedly, you know, hey, the can't study the individual because the the properties of the system are, you know, won't, that won't tell you about the system at large, right? Is that sort of the the deal? Yeah, yeah, and and and, and you know, he, he talks about what happens when you reduce things to 
to the basic um, fundamentals of it. And then in that process, you lose the emergent property around it. So the first example he gave was literally based on that with the Mobius strip. But what I mean by all this that makes it interesting that ties into all the rest of the stuff we've been talking about is the disconnect between um, the, the energy required to make progress is one that's, in, in my view, tied directly to what your future options look like. So if you come out with debt and you have a low-paying job and there's no way in how you can afford a house, that's mm-hmm. three things emotionally just punching you in the gut from the very minute you wake up to the minute you go to sleep, right? right? And that compounds itself because your options are so limited. And then if you made an error of, you know, uh, perhaps having a child too soon where you weren't financially capable of doing that, and now you have to do even more work just to get that, get that child fed and taken care of. So, so a lot of these issues sort of wrap themselves around and you turn into this mess of complexity soup, so to speak, of, you know, too much debt, not enough options, low paying job, have to take the job because you need to feed the kid, can't uh, upgrade your skills because you're feeding a kid and you're dealing with your other right. priorities. You get a sick parent because all these things, as time unfurls, all these other issues sort of just kind of hitch along for the ride. You know, you're younger. Your parents may be in okay health as you graduate from school and you had a kid and you know, all this debt. One of your parents gets sick. Now you have to deal with that. So all these issues just right. sort of eat away at it. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world where, you know, there was some level of nationalism to protect uh, the population in, in, in general are now basically taking your job. And now you have people coming in from other countries who not only do, do they have a degree, but they have like a master's degree. Right. So. You look at all that and you see all the barriers that make um, the, the motivating factor of a human being to want to get up and go do something extremely daunting. And so I'm not surprised when I see a lot of people who are uh, overwhelmed and, you know, they're depressed. And then uh, to compound that one more layer yet again, from a complexity point of view, you have all this junk food that's been heavily processed, ready to be eaten at any minute with the pizzas and the, and the burgers and the fries and the, you know, the snacks that are put into the schools and all the other stuff. You, you look at that and you look at the lack. I mean, and I noticed this in one generation myself, which is when I was a kid, we would, when school was finished, we would all run home and we had, and we didn't have cell phones or anything. So what we would do is we'd say, Hey, everybody come back here at 4:30. We're playing football today. And we would play. And, uh, when, when it was too dark, uh, sometimes one of our parents would sort of randomly show up. Hey, everybody. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Come home. Dinner's ready. You know, do your homework. But now I go outside. I don't see these kids. Right. I'm, and I'm like, well, you know, and, and it creates this weird buffer zone because the parents who are doing well, they get their kids enrolled in these programs where they pay for it. And the mm-hmm. parents who aren't doing well, their kids are at home watching Netflix and they're eating. Yeah. The, and not, obviously, not all of them, you know, but but a vast majority. And you, we're noticing this with the BMI index of the population of Canada and the United States for the past, let's say, tw- 20 years. A lot more people are labeled unhealthy and obese than they used to be. Right. So all these factors, low, low paying job, no future options, you know, that, uh, and, and that, what's really interesting. And I, I wish somebody could really look into this is like, how, what are the proclivities of a person who's buried in OSAP debt or a school student loan debt to get buried in credit card debt? Cause they're like, look, if the debt's insurmountable anyway, I'm just going to take on more of it. And then it reminds me of that saying, if I owe you $10,000, that's my problem. If I owe you $10 million, that's your problem. Right. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting. I think that's sort of interesting. It's just like, you know, I, I've, this occurred to me a few times over the last couple of years. Like reading at the student loan numbers, you're like, well, maybe you should take out a huge student loan, and you figure that, you know, the taxpayer is going to eventually have to, you know, bail everybody out. I don't know. Right. Right. 
like no one ever i don't know people don't think about that but we seem to just be you know that is like the where we're going where everybody expects um you know someone to come to the rescue when we can't manage our finances like i you know i read quite a bit about like illinois uh you know uh, fiscal situation in Chicago, but you know, there's if you read any of these like muni bond, you know, services, like there's probably I think in the back of everybody's mind, it's always like, but you know, the federal government could possibly orchestrate a bailout. You know what I mean? Yes. And yes, think, yes. the moral and, hazard. And, and yeah, and it's and it's not unrealistic considering you know we're in a situation where globally we've you know central banks have printed you know twenty trillion dollars. Well, that is just an insane to say. You know, if you you know, 20 years ago, I don't think anybody really would have believed we would have done that. But, you know, that's what we've done. Yeah. And so yeah. it's sort of building up this sort of idea that, yeah, it's like there is an entity out there to protect people's, you know, uh, finances and bad investments and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's kind of scary that that's going on. And I don't know. You know, I think it's hard to believe there aren't people engaging in strategies um, you know, at all sorts of levels saying, Hey, there's going to be someone there, uh, to, uh, to, to save me. And God, I mean, what if we had another housing took off again and people, you know, loans became really cheap. I mean, think about how many other people will just say, well, I'm going to, you know, throw caution to the wind and, you know, get in as much real estate, you know, leverage as I can. And if I win big, it's fine. And if I don't win big, well, the government will have to do something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then, yeah. yeah, good. No, what's scary about that is they have a legit case to make in the sense of, of the following way. They can say, how can you bail out the banks, but you can't bail out the student loans, right? Right. And, and, and from a moral point of view, you really don't have a say into that to say, look, you're right. We shouldn't have bailed out the banks, but we did. And we shouldn't have bailed out long-term capital, but we did. Right. We shouldn't have... Right. We shouldn't have bailed out General Motors, but we did. But now you it's your turn at the at the till and you're asking and we're saying no to you. You you don't have the moral grounds to say no at that point. You should. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's going to be a major issue again when we have another recession, you know, uh, in the U.S. And, and I'm sure probably some other places where people are, you know, they remember, you know, they're going to remember uh, the things that were done to help other people. And it's going to be a really messy situation trying to figure that out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, or, and you have some an entity like the Federal Reserve, which is essentially, you know, enabling, um, you know, it's they're sort of help us run more or less running like a Ponzi scheme where right. you know, we have the same the, that money. But, you know, every month for the last 10 years or whatever, they've been buying more and more bonds. And so the, that relieves the government of having to, uh, you know, sell more and probably sell them at bad rates or not have, or not have enough buyers for them. So mm. this is a major long-term it's, you know, it's a big issue. And I don't know. I mean, I, you know, it's like, I think, you know, this is like Ray, Ray Dalio, I think talks about this a lot too, where he, you know, kind of alludes to these problems coming up and, you know, uh, you know, he's always saying we're going to be at our, at each other's throats in the next recession. And I think he's probably correct. You know what I mean? And the problems, uh, you know, stirring up inequality and bailouts and, you know, it's just a big mess. And, and, and why are student loans? They're not, you know, you can't, um, you can't declare bankruptcy with student loans. Right. 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 And they're tied, they're tied to you. 
Yeah, there's like no mechanism for releasing them, which is weird too. Um, but it's just, boy, it really is like, because at some point, you know, I think, you know, the markets will probably peak and we'll begin to see, you know, slowdown happen and, you know, probably get the usual stuff. Probably, you know, the credit spreads will probably start widening as some, you know, bankruptcies being in pile up from the last 10 years. And then, you know, what, what happens, you know, then, you know, a big budget deficit and, uh, you know, national debt is just been run up through the roof. And, you know, uh, it really, it could be a dicey situation. And a lot of people are going to realize that the system is just like, if we don't, if we don't have skin in the game for people, everybody, I mean, everybody needs to have skin in the game. That's the issue. Right. I mean, right. we can't have people just saying, Oh, well, you're going to take these risks and there's, you know, we're going to donate, you know, we're the taxpayers there to bail you out. We just won't survive right. that. You know, it's just, right. a, it's a recipe for, uh, you know, social upheaval and, you know, a lot of just angst and frustration and just the opinion that people are not being treated fairly. And I think, um, too, that you, I think people are sort of getting the impression too, that maybe the, the wealthy and the powerful, you know, are, have a really big leg up. It's like, you look at the Epstein thing in the U S and just reading the Twitter comments. I think there is a lot, there are a lot of people out there. Like there just are wealthy and powerful people that aren't playing by the rules or like the, uh, the Sackler family, I think who, you know, the Purdue pharma, you know, pharmaceuticals and the opioid stuff. And it just sort of reads like, well, these people have billions and billions of dollars. You know, they are sort of, you know, complicit in sort of a mass murder, you know, of a lot of people from, you know, misleading about the dangers of opiate addiction. And then, you know, really all they're really doing is having to do is cut a check. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and I think people that kind of irks people, there's no, there's no criminal wrongdoing or anything. And it's like, okay, well you had $20 billion and now you have 15. Well, right. oh, it's, you know, most people's lives aren't really going to be affected, but I do think that that is like an issue where people are seeing, you know, um, stuff kind of happen that they realize that people are getting shielded from legal liability and, you know, and, and then just, and then the most obvious one, you know, banking, you know, no one went to jail during the financial crisis, uh, cause the government just decided that, you know, they weren't going to do that because you know, it, right. it would be risky or something. You know what I mean? But, right. you know, right. it's a really, really tough pill to swallow and say, well, we had to bail you out and now you pay all these bonuses. And then the response is like, oh, no, we, we can't touch them because they're critical to, you know, getting the economy uh, moving. Oh, sorry. Something just beeped, I think. And so um, I don't know. It's just uh, I think it's an important issue. Well, you know what's interesting about that? Because I thought about that issue for a number of years, right? So I, I, I kind of sat back and said, why wouldn't you sort of go after this institution that's basically become so parasitic at its core that the level of disdain for people who are in, in, in the financial sector is almost uh, to the level where you can't even fathom it? And then I realized, I said, well, you know, the biggest thing that the United States uh, pushes out to the rest of the world is this idea of protecting um uh your property property rights and and, Mm in essence the only way that actually can work is if you can own something without somebody taking it from you and the people who facilitate that on the grandest scale are the people on wall street because they allow you to trade stock which becomes a piece of your property that you own from apple or google or whatever 
And so to protect that ideal, they kind of had to bite the bullet on this other end of it, which was to allow this, uh, you know, rather corrupt process to unfurl itself. And these people who got all this money and, 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 and every single one of them will give you the same example. I don't know. It wasn't really me. I had a whole bunch of things were involved and in. it's like, who are you going to really take it out on? And, and so people have this level of vengeance and anger built up. And I think what you and I are starting to see here is there's this powder keg situation here where there's so much rage that's just waiting for an opportunity to just uh, come to the top. Right. And, and you see little bits and pieces of it here and there with the Occupy Wall Street movement and the mm-hmm. whole Antifa thing and all. Every single one of these is invariably, from what I could see, tied to economic uh, options being removed from the average person, right? So I, I see that that connection. I'm like, I'm like, hey, you know, we gotta, we can't just let people quote unquote suffer. Uh, if as long as they've been doing things honestly and they keep getting the short end of the stick, you should not be surprised that uh, there's all this anger built into it and there's all this backlash built into these things. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's true, and I think. Um, like you look at younger people and I do anecdotally kind of like just what I'm reading on the internet is there are some, I think, inter, inter generational kind of backlash too, where it's like, you see, we almost have these like millennial versus baby boomer, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of our stirring beneath the surface, which is kind of, which is disturbing because it's saying, mm-hmm. that, you know, we're grouping generations against against each other. And I think right. there's a lot of talk from like boomers saying, oh, well, millennials are lazy. And, you know, I, you know, in 1971, you know, I, you know, marched to school five miles every morning and I still <laughs> my mortgage and all this other stuff, which I don't right. think is a, a kind of a crappy argument because I, you know, I do think that younger people like this recession, you know, we didn't, you know, really, uh, you know, it had a profound effect on it. It saved a lot of baby boomers, I would imagine, you know, from yes. foreclosed on and, you know, we're trying to pump up their stock portfolios and stuff. But it hasn't kind of filtered down into the kind of growth if you're younger in the sense that they want to get a job and an OK place to live. And instead, we have a lot of younger people living at home. And then mm. when the boomers, you know, complain about, you know, uh, saying, oh, you shouldn't complain, they say they rightfully point out they're like, look, you weren't living at home trying to find a job and had student debt you couldn't pay when you were 25 years old. And that's I right. think it really is there. That is fundamentally correct. And, you know, they I think a lot of baby boomers, uh, you know, they, you know, when the financial crisis hit, they were really in a really bad shape. You know, they had borrowed too much. They, you know, had, you know, didn't protect their stock market portfolio. A lot of these things and were losing their jobs. And, you know, and then most of the benefits, I think, had kind of been more concentrated on some of their, you know, their uh, age group than younger people's age groups. And I think that creates sort of a, a feeling of jealousy and sort of not jealousy, but just sort of, um, Hey, you know, I'm the one I'm younger, I'm getting screwed here. And we're kind of right. best because of what you guys did. And you went out and, you know, you just did a bunch of really bad financial decisions and now, and the economy just hasn't been able to uh, kind of, grow in the dynamic sense that we have like in the nineties and before. Mm. Um, mm. And I think that just sort of leaves a, a sort of a bitter taste in your mouth. And it's like around Chicago too. I think a lot of younger people under the age of 30, it's like they're really burdened by costs. You know what I mean? Mm. Just getting like 
a place to live is, you know, and like, and I'm saying like not nice places to live, like, you know, rent, renting's gone up a lot and just other stuff. So, you know, it's kind of just eats, you know, kind of eats away at you. You know what I mean? And so it kind of makes a mockery of inflation because I think inflation is sort of, however they measure inflation is just the government, there's a million different ways to measure it. And, and the reality is it's like, it's never spread evenly. You know, the, uh, you can have low inflation, but the reality, you know, according to how the government wants to measure it, but then have a whole class of other people that are kind of just like really struggling to, you know, keep things together. So, it's, oh, oh, of yeah. course. And, and, and there's the uh, other dynamic of it that's, that's interesting, which is as follows, right? So you had the boomers and I, and I, and I've always noticed this, right? So the, any game you walk into, and I learned this at a very young age, you need to understand that you're presuming it's a symmetrically fair, even playing field and the day you become an adult or sort of the idea of coming of ages when you realize that every almost every game you get into it's asymmetric and somebody somewhere has leverage that you don't know about and if you don't pay attention wealth transfer mechanisms will be put into place i.e there were people and and i'm I'm giving a specific example so let's please make sure our audience doesn't generalize it too far out is they the idea of the unions that um like uh, it just happened literally last year in canada which was that the gm plant uh, you know, there's generate, there's a whole, uh, area called Oshawa, which is built around the, the General Motors plant. And there are generations of people essentially just went from high school to getting a job in the union. And mm-hmm. the jobs kept getting, you know, more lucrative, a lot more pay for not very much more productive, uh, output. And there was a built in layer of assumption built in that, well, uh, my granddad did it. My dad did it. I'm doing it, but my son can't do it. And they're angry about that. And the rest of us are kind of looking at this saying, well, just because you did that doesn't necessarily mean that the value that you're creating matches the standard of living you want the constant increases to come with. And so yeah. now you have this other problem, which we discussed on earlier, which was that the boomers had lots of kids, right? Their mm-hmm. kids had some kids, but now this generation can't have any kids, but they have to financially support via vis-a-vis tax mechanisms, um, uh, debts that accrued from the people pre- previous to them. And they can't have their own kids and they don't have their own assets. So there's this, for the first time, I think in human history, we're noticing that within one civilization, you have generational conflict where there's actual rage predicated from the younger ones to the older ones because they're being left off worse off than they started. Usually it's the other way around, right? You know, the the hard work. I think, you know, younger people are probably someone rightfully so pointing out they're like, look, I, there's no guarantee that my generation is going to be in better shape than, you know, you guys were. And in fact, when I objectively look at the situation, it looks like I'm going to be in a worse situation. So then if you, you know, you look at uh, what, you know, the resources that are going to be needed to provide for older generations as, you know, like we're kind of getting older and, you know, America's aging and stuff, it sort of looks like a bad deal. And then, you know, you're like, oh, I'm paying the social security. I'm doing all this, but it's like, I just don't have the money to do this. And then, you know, and then a lot of this stuff was promised by some politician that died 35 years ago or 40 years ago. And it's a part of the system now. And it's like, no, you're on the hook for uh, liabilities that you never voted for. And that's, and that's another, you know, skin in the game problem. I mean, it's, Mm. you know, we need more symmetry, uh, between, you know, not having people vote for being able to vote other generations money, you know, to, to other people. And that's, you know, really, uh, complicated stuff, but, 
uh, at some point we're going to have to figure out a better way to do that because that has been the deal in the U.S. forever. It's just sort of make all these promises and then they don't really, you know, and then, you know, it's future generations money and then they and then they never really have the money. So then they're borrowing more and more and, you know, things just get out of control. It's like it's like in Chicago, um, you know, if you're if you're a legacy Democrat system. And then, and, and this goes along with economists too. Like I, I've noticed that like economists and then some of these like the, in legacy, you know, these big legacy cities, it's like, they really take for granted that growth is like easy to come by. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, they, like they don't live in the real world. So like economists always are just like, Oh, no problem. Because, you know, we just borrow a lot because, you know, the economy is just so easy to figure out. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and as long as they get the money, we'll just have, you know, great growth and, you know, things are just so simple, but they don't, they're not business people and they don't realize how much, how hard it is to accidentally build a business and make it profitable and all this other stuff. So they, you know, have no problems being like, Oh, we can tax more, tax the wealthy more and all this other nonsense. It's like, you can't. It's just harder. It's just a much, much, much harder thing to do than you think. And they they just assume that the world is like really they, – they have no concept of reality. It's just a very simplified way of looking at things where, where they don't understand how we're growing or the difficult you know ways of you know just putting your money on the line and, you know, and trying to, to make things work. They just don't get that stuff. So they just – have no problem just saying, okay, well, we can tax more and all this other stuff, but you can't, you know, you can't eventually you just run into huge problems. Right. So can you just explain uh, modern uh, monetary policy? Oh, MMT? Sure. Yep. So you think about what MMT is, is like, you know, how does the government usually fund itself if it's not tax, if it's not through taxes? Like, what it does is, you know, it sells bonds and those bonds have, you know, coupons and, you know, maturity dates and all that other stuff. And, you know, and they, you know, someone buys them and says in 2021, you know, you get your, you know, principal plus your interest back. Well, because that's the way things are done. You know, you don't you have to sell a bond to finance yourself. MMT would just be like, there's no bonds at all. He would just essentially plug in a bunch of money into someone's uh, bank account and just zip it right to them. So that's that's the difference. And people don't realize, like, because that's how because governments, you know, if governments can't raise taxes, they have to borrow from someone. And that's the way they get resources. And this mm-hmm. is just sort of like a scam to try and avoid that, you know, unpleasant, you know, reality. And I don't know, this NNT thing, like all the money printing and stuff, it kind of reminds me a lot of like um, past like financial media. It's like tech stocks in the 90s where people are just sort of grasping to really bad ideas or ideas mm-hmm. that aren't really great you know what i mean like, it's like oh you can run an unprofitable business or, or or housing where everyone's like oh my house will go up you know eight percent a year forever it doesn't matter what price and then so this this kind of talk reminds me it's just sort of like a collective it's like another madness kind of thing where you can just sort of violate you know all the uh you know thousands thousands of years of history it says that no you really can't print money safely you know no one's ever been able to do it you know and and uh you you eventually run into problems so and because and then like you were about inflation it's like you remember in the 1920s uh like when germany like weimar had a big problem they, they printed money for a few years and they didn't nothing really happened and then one day inflation just exploded you know they had that mm-hmm. 
thing called like the wheelbarrow year where it's like everybody's walking around with like wheelbarrows full of cash. So it sort of looks really seductive. I think you can just, you know, get a, get something for nothing. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Just, I mean, it, it, I think the evidence says that maybe for a little bit you can, but not, mm. you know, not over the long haul. And you could never re- rely on this uh, as uh, something reliable. Like I keep, like when they keep talking about more quantity of easing, I keep thinking to myself, well, I'm like, this is not reliable. You know what I mean? You, you can't you can't use this on a consistent basis, and it's uh, in, in a safe way to make it reliable. So, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it does, and and, and it's kind of scary from the following point of view, right? Because we've never seen the world's largest economy um, ever uh, sputter to the point where it had to, the government that, that's backing it has to declare bankruptcy. I mean, bankruptcy of governments. Most people aren't aware, but a lot of other governments do declare bankruptcy because they just can't fund their various misadventures. But yeah. it's never been, and, and it's always under the assumption that the greenback was always going to be fine. And right. yet the people who are in charge of it continuously make these assumptions that are not rooted in reality, as you stated. And so the, if you, if you look at the next collapse that may come, and it comes with all the student debt tied to it, with all these bubbles tied to it, right. with all this monetary policy. And then if the biggest bank, or the biggest uh, government in the world declares bankruptcy, sort of like they can't pay their bills, Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even know what that would look like, right? That, well, when you say I think, well, I think it would be a disaster. And and the and the the in this the screwy part of what we're doing is that we're risking doing that. I think arguably to have saved uh, you know banks and other people from ten years ago. So it's like we're mm-hmm. taking one risk. You know, we're trying to save some people by taking even greater risks that we shouldn't mm-hmm. be doing. You know what I mean? Right. Ten years ago, we could have said, "Okay, we have a problem with banks. We need to do some sort of orderly bankruptcy uh, mm-hmm. and put a lot of people and institutions through this stuff." But you know, and it would have been painful. But you know, then we're not increase, but we wouldn't increase the systematic risk, their system risks, by loading the system up with lots of public debt, which is really, really more complicated. And you know, there's no public bankruptcy, and people don't even really know what public debt is. Like at least with like right. private debt, you can kind of say, okay, well, we can work out a deal, and if some people lose some money, that's fine. Instead, you have you know twenty. Two twenty-three trillion dollars. You know, that's the official amount of debt we owe. But you know, I think the numbers are probably you know higher than that. With more, there's more hidden liabilities and stuff like that. But so you're sort of taking uh, one risk and gambling with a much bigger risk. And you know, yeah, we would never want to see a situation where uh, you know the U.S. got in trouble. But but I think the unfortunate what's going on is like we haven't seen the U.S. interest rates rise or anything, but we've seen other large co- large uh, countries where this has happened. Like Italy's had you know pub- has got a public debt problem. That's what like the sixth largest you know country you know by GDP in the world. So things are mm. kind of uh, you know stuff that would have been unthinkable uh, mm. for big you know developed countries to get in fiscal problems. Like the reality is that they have fiscal problems. So it's it used to just kind of be like, oh, well, Argentina or these kind of places that, you know, were not 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 the wealthiest places is sort of moving closer to us. And, you know, we just can't seem politically, we can't seem to, you know, do anything about budgets or anything. And they're just, you know, so I think every day, you know, the risks are probably, you know, they get higher, you know, like it's, you know, tiny, tiny bits every day is sort of getting into more and more trouble. So, it's, yeah. 
Yeah, we, and we, yeah, you're right. I mean, like, what, what would it be like if the U.S. had a fiscal problem and, you know, we're, we're essentially in charge of, you know, six, 75% of the world's military, you know what I mean? Or whatever. Mm-hmm. And just the mess of just, you know, uh, being, you know, that kind of stuff and having, you know, we, we would probably have, you know, jeopardized, you know, global, you know, safety to a certain extent too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, but we can't seem to get, you know, out of our own way. You know, we just, I don't know. <laughs> it's a mess. Well, you know, what's, what's interesting about that is, and, and it just happened in the last um, uh, 10 years or so in Canada, maybe a little bit before that, but I'll, I'll give you a, a sort of a, a weird thing that I've been witnessing, which is that a lot of um, uh, money's been flowing in from China and buying up real estate across Canada like you wouldn't believe, right? Like, and the, 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 people can't afford homes simply because the, market for uh, purchasing that is, is insanely out of whack with reality mm-hmm. and, the, and the people who are flowing those that, that capital out of those countries and coming into this one a lot of the times the homes are vacant right the, the condos mm-hmm. that are being bought are vacant but it's what it is is they're taking the, the money from that economy recognizing the potential risk of having the government one day say all right we're we're not following the, the ideology that we're supposed to everybody's wealth gets re uh, oh yeah rejected back into our economy so we're going to take away all your stuff they figured, oh, I know what the best thing I could do is I could just go out abroad and buy some real estate, and they they can't touch that because I could put that in the name of my son who will live in that country, right. and they won't be able to touch all that. So this mechanism started to sort of uh, play itself out, and then the Canadian government came in and said, all right, we're going to tax these people, or there's going to be an extra 25% that they have to pay for this. And it didn't even flinch, right? It not, all it did was nothing. Like In essence, it's supposed to cool the market down a little bit for, for, the, for the housing uh, in these areas. None of that happened because, again, there's so much money out there. And I started to look at this, right. and, I, and I tie it into the following aspect of it. It's kind of like this. It's a really interesting and weird way to look at it, and I'll, I'll be happy to take your take on it. But it's like, it's like imagine you're the government, and you started to notice the narco um, uh, market sort of sprouting up in, 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 in South America. And at first, you know, they're bad guys. They're, they're building drugs and, you know, all this stuff. And uh, it's okay. We can kind of manage it. But then every time they get wealthier, they become much more dangerous, right? To the point where you can arrest one guy and another guy will just sprout up on its top and he'll take over. Now there's billions of dollars being generated. So it's this whole other economy that's being built, 300 billion last time I heard. And so whatever, you started off with a small problem of, of wealth transfer because in those areas where this particular set of uh, ideas sort of you know, proliferate, um, wealth transfer is the first thing that happens, right? So the people, their, their safety is at risk, so they can't go to work as much. And, you know, the police are overwhelmed, so the police become corrupt because the drug dealer who has, you know, $10 million a day uh, to, to spend can afford to pay the cop a little bit of money so he doesn't have to be arrested. So all these sort of mechanisms sort of feed back into itself, right? So in the United States and in Canada, we don't have that particular problem, but we notice it in other areas, right? It's sort of the same mechanism just manifesting itself in a different way. And like you said, like, uh, you know, they're giving out bonds that are like, uh, last I checked, I saw there's a bond for a hundred years. I'm like, who in the world would want to sign a loan for a hundred years? Because it's like, you're assuming that you're not confident about the future. And their presumption is I'm going to buy this, get the loan, and then I'm going to give it to my kids. But then you're still assuming that in a hundred years, they're going to honor that loan, right? So you're basically throwing money out the door Yeah. to a group of people who may not necessarily, like, they're not going to think a hundred, they're, they're thinking next election cycle. You think they're going to honor your hundred year debt? Like, come on, let's be real yeah. here, right? Well, that's the misallocation of resources. Yeah. And a hundred year bonds, I think does, you know, <laughs> if you have a realistic <laughs> look at the world history, you're like, man, 
who the heck knows <laughs> what what the 100 years old will look right now i mean 100 years ago i mean the u.s was still god we had a civil war in 1865 i don't know you know the, the world is just so messy it's just hard to even conceive of loaning your money for that duration you know and, and <laughs> I mean, there's probably a realistic chance that no one, you know, I don't know, that we're the population of the world shrunk by half by then. I don't know. You know, it just it's just it's a crazy way to think about it. And it it just shows, you know, the things in fixed income world are people are really, really desperate for any kind of yield they can get. And I think they think that there's not a bubble or 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 something like that, but they're probably you know, really, really put, well, they're absolutely pushed alive. We're buying any kind of negative yielding debt. You know, it's just, that's just, you know, it's insane. And I don't know, we're just governments are there. There are sort of, you know, kind of turning the world upside down with, um, you know, their, their central banks and their policies towards, you know, interest rates. And they view interest rates as like a tool to sort of fix growth and stuff, but, you know, they don't, you know, they just don't, think through um, the unintended consequences very well and then you or put it or the and they and they don't feel um, any remorse or guilt about sort of putting deliberately putting people into certain uh, asset classes and that's kind of what they've done they've done too by sort of just kind of really really kind of manipulating free markets you know they you know we don't you know they're determined to you know clamp interest rates down to zero you know, they just don't really care, um, you know, how that they, they have their own opinion on that and they don't want to hear anybody else's opinion. That's his opinion. Why, why, yeah. why it might not be a good idea. And that's just kind of a disturbing, uh, disturbing way to look at it. And it's kind of it's very uh, pompous and kind of just, you know, arrogant, too. It's like, well, we're going to control the marketplace and just, you know, determine that everybody gets this interest rate and. You know, if you don't want to hear about it, if you don't like it, you know, we're just going to tell you to screw off or whatever. So, right. It's, right. it's bad. That, uh, I think it's a bad deal. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's, what's uh, uh, interesting about that, and it ties back to what you were stating earlier, um, and, and I look at it in this way, right? So people, like, I hear all the time, like, oh, we have a climate change problem, all this other stuff, and everybody's solution is we're just going to innovate this. So I'm like, okay. Here's, here's where this problem really lies. And, and, and I know this because I look at the number of people who are like really, really smart and have an effect to change the world. And I look at entrepreneurs who are really, really actually entrepreneurs who, are, you know, who don't build these, um, uh, nonsense companies that just generate paper profits. I'm talking like real, you know, mm. uh, things that actually can like objective things you can grab a hold of to say this made somebody's life better. Um, and so this is the thing, right? So you have this population that go oh, more eyes on the problem equals better solutions. I'm like, no, that's not true because here's the difference. When you have um, uh, people who actually move things forward from the point of view of they have a insight into the unknown and they generate some wealth out of it or generate some uh, deeper understanding for it, it's not like a tug of war where you just want more people pulling. This is more like a race. And then the race is complicated because it's a race through a jungle. Right. So not only does more people does not guarantee you anything, because if you have more people and they're just more idiots, that's not necessarily going to net benefit you because, right. yeah, there are more people doing this. Right. So so this this mis- disconnect between if we have more people, we will create more companies, we will create more jobs and we will create more benefits and we'll create more prosperity. All of that is presuming that everybody's equal. And that's not true. And right. you need like like and all you have to do is look at it. And say, OK, how many Newtons and Einstein's have we had? 
Sure. Right? How many Mozarts have you had? Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's just, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, wealth and probably progress in general is like, you know, fat-tailed, where it's just a few people are more or less responsible for a lot of, you know, the growth we're getting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's like, you need one individual like Steve Jobs, and he sort of just brings, you know, I don't know, 500 million people out of poverty. You know what I mean? Like, you know of what course. I mean? It's something like that. And, and you know, and, and, you know, that's maybe a little exaggerating, but, you know, it's like he's a guy who's like a great idea and he's a great entrepreneur. And he's a great businessman. And he's all these other things. And you realize that, yeah, a lot of other people like, you know, 99.9% of the people, they're not these people. You know what I mean? Yes. They, they yes. can't do this stuff. And that's why it looks bad when you're taxing people's wealth because you realize like, no, it's like these other people, they're riding uh, Bill Gates's coattails or Larry Ellison's coattails. You know, that is the bottom line. I'm not saying they're, they don't get some support, but, you know, these are people that are, you know, they may have some, you know, there may be, there's always some luck involved, but, you know, of course. but, you know, they really are the kind of people that have. Um, you know, the risk taking and the, and, and the, you know, this, the skills, the skills to, you know, bring, make great products and, and sell stuff. And if we didn't have those people, we would just have nothing, you know, right. even, you know, right. the, you, everyone would be poor, you know what I mean? There would be nobody. So that's, uh, and, uh, yeah, I think people that's sort of maybe uncomfortable for people to think about, but I think that like intuitively, makes sense to me and you know there's a lot of people out there that just aren't really great risk takers you know what i mean and that doesn't mean not like great people or they're not smart but they're maybe people that can kind of um you know build a business and you know come up with some great ideas and that really is this you know a selective group of people that really can do that and then everybody kind of benefit everyone just but you know, people benefit from them. You know, they, they right. get hired by these people. Steve Jobs or, you know, all these whatever. It's like, well, you come work at Apple and make $250,000 a year or something like that. And, you know, that's great. You're not, you know, you didn't come up with the iPhone, but, you know, I'm I'm paying you a lot to, you know, help help sell them and stuff like that. So Right. Right. You know, so it's interesting on that front. I'll give you two points to that. One. I highly, highly, highly recommend the Ken Burns documentary on the life of Mark Twain. One of my favorite authors of all time. Okay. But Mark Twain, uh, if you, if you like, you're going to watch this documentary. Like, this was a truly gifted human being who's also lived a very tragic life. And one of the mm-hmm. things that was interesting about him was he made a lot of money with his books. And every ounce of his money that he made, he made horrible investments and kept losing money. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. So he had to go on these lecture tours and, and it just destroyed his life from multiple angles. But like just if you're ever just like wanting to learn, I, and I think uh, Twain was the uh, original, you know, people will make this argument that it's either Twain or, or um, Herman Melville that started the American literature revolution sort of because that's the first great authors that came out of the, the U.S. But I think anybody who just really wants to have a, a fantastic point of view of, 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 of a game changer, reading Twain. Uh, is, is one of those people, but looking at his lifestyle will actually match that. And I've, and I've, okay, so I have an interesting point to add about Mark Twain and his investments, and this is like what people don't think about either, is that, okay, Mark Twain obviously was a brilliant writer, and, you know, didn't he? He toured all over Europe and stuff like that, right? When his book. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and, and so he was a, a, you know, a really talented writer. But, you know, what did he do? Instead of just perhaps socking his money away, 
you know, in the bank or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, he decided to get into investing and lost a bunch of money. And I think that's what a lot of people end up doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because we're yeah. sort of taught to sort of like, okay, you're uh, in software or you're, you know, a dentist. And then, you know, the finance industry or the investment industry comes after you. It's like, no, no, it's like, you got to get 8% a year. And then you got to, you know, you have to, you know, do all have this portfolio set up like this, but they mm-hmm. just don't often understand that the risks are probably are higher than are assumed. And they end up, you know, during doing worse than if they just put their money in, you know, a 4% savings bond, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And, or just buying some property or, or, or just, yeah. Or anything, anything like that. But just, you know, they, it, uh, cause you're sort of taught to like, well, you know, you, you got to uh, lend out, you know, you got to take your savings and sort of lend it out in all these different ways. And mm-hmm. it sort of uh, looks safer than it actually is. And I think, and especially because we don't have, uh, you know, uh, bus very often, you know, you, you kind of, it's easy to sort of think that you, know, you can sort of, you know, that buying stocks is easy. like in the nineties. You remember the nineties, it was like, mm-hmm. we had a, you know, 10 year bull market and you know everyone i'm sure in 1999 had you know a lot of gains accumulated and they were listening to every uh every guy you know finance guy man oh well the market you know returns eight percent a year or something like that and they're like great i'm investing as much as i can and then you know 2000 hits and the market loses you know 40 i think it was like 44 percent of its value so you've lost all 10 years of your gains you know what i mean yeah of course and and of people, just, you know, I think because of the amount, of, because these don't show up very often, you just think that it's safer than it is, and you don't realize that there's like a bust. And that's like you know, I was talking about a skew earlier in mm. in the when we were talking earlier. It's like you know, the skew is to the downside, and it's a lot bigger than people think. And you just don't. Uh, it's easy to forget about it because you don't. It just doesn't happen very often. You know, we have. Right. You know, we have long booms, um, you know, fast busts, you know, and right. sim- similar thing to, um, you know, like, you know, when we had a property bubble, you know, you know, prices for, you know, houses rose, rose, rose. And then, you know, when they go down, they go down a lot faster than you would think. And, mm. you know, it, it's just, you know, but that's the same thing. It's like Mark Twain. It's like, hey, it's like focus on what you're good at. You're a good. Yes. Like, you're yes. Not- you're not a great investor. You know what I mean? No, you really aren't. No. And what, what did he? Oh. What? What? What was? What were some of the things he lost his money on? Do you? Do you remember? Uh, I, I remember it was a lot to do with. Um, uh, geez, oh my god, I'm trying to remember right now. But there was a there was um there's this whole boom about technology even in that time. Uh, with, uh, you know, the washing machines and all the electric. Remember those fat, those fair movies you'd see? Oh, in the future, everything is going to be like this. And yeah, yeah. So a lot of those people, because, because the thing with Twain, and I, and I, and I'll draw a parallel for you. The thing with Twain that happened was that he would have these amazing parties where he was obviously the life of the party because his wit. I, I think, uh, besides Oscar Wilde, those were my one and two. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody could match Twain's wit. And think about this. What if, Microsoft would one and the operating platform for mobile phones was Windows based. Yeah, exactly. That was, I think, almost like sort of a reality. I mean, they were working on it. You know what I mean? They were. They, didn't they were just out. too late. They yeah. were too late or whatever. They're like, oh my God. It's like, thank God. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, it'd be awful. Everyone would be, you know, boot, rebooting their phones all the time. And <laughs> 
So it's just like it, it is probably just a stroke of luck that you know uh, you, you know it came up with the iPhone and then the operating system and all that other stuff is just so much more stable than you know Windows and you know thank God they didn't you know infect the planet with Windows you know based PCs with on their phones too. You know, it's right, just, right. You know what's What's hilarious about that, and, I, and this is where I could tell because I watched the interviews of um, Steve Ballmer with uh, Charlie Rose, and I watched interviews um, of him when the iPhone was being introduced and how he laughed at it. And then I've been, I have friends who work at Apple, and I have friends who work mm-hmm. at Microsoft, so I'm sort of somewhat privy to some information. But well, here's what's interesting about that. What's interesting about that is um, when Steve wanted the phone, um, he actually said to them, "Just start from scratch and figure it out." Right. So they had two versions of the operating system. One was based on what the iPod was running, and one was based on what the Mac was running. And he created two teams and said, I don't care, just figure it out, make it work. Mm-hmm. Well, at Microsoft, their strategy was our cash cow, our bread and our butter and our steak and our and our french fries are all at Windows. Take Windows and shoehorn it into this thing. Yeah. And because of that initial limitation, they lost ground because they took what and, – and this is exactly the kind of a conversation we love at Worsley Conversations, which is what we've had. It's, they looked in the mirror – and they tried to project what they've already seen into the future. Whereas Steve right. th- did the exact opposite. He goes, I don't know which version is going to work. You guys figure it out. He created two teams and had them compete against each other right. and said, whichever team gets the answer right, it's the one we're going to go with. And that's the difference between the risk taker who recognizes the, the, the capacity for luck and the capacity for um, not doing top-down planning on that front. Because there are a lot of people think, oh, it's a lot of top-down planning. But uh, some of the friends that I have who work there will tell you that what they do is um, they gather around and they have like the best people from each department. And it's like a secret process of nomination of how you get invited to this. And they, they, they gather around and they have a uh, hundred ideas they put on the board. And it's mm-hmm. okay. These are the hundred ideas. And here's our overall strategy. And here are pieces that we already have in place. And where do we want to go? And so once they come up with these hundred ideas, they say, okay, now let's take this to the next to the 10 best ideas. And then once we get the 10 best ideas, let's prioritize them and we're going to tackle them according to timelines of deliverables. And if we can't deliver it on iOS 13, we'll, we'll slate it for iOS 13.1 or 13.2. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, that process is, is never predetermined because there's an interview of Steve Jobs himself. If you watch it, he says that one of the worst things you can do is try to project fast for, uh, further than five years. You just can't do it. Because mm-hmm. if, if you're doing that, you have to presume that the, the, the market in the tech world stays the way it is right now. And then you don't right. know who your competitor is going to bring out onto the market. You don't know what they're going to do. So if you go past five years, you're essentially wasting money. So their R&D department is a lot different than most tech companies who have, quote unquote, moonshots. And, and Microsoft has this crazy table called Surface that they unveil, but they never made into a product. And Google has this, we're going to put up blimps and it never really materialized. But Steve's money, the, all their money is invested in like operations. You know, let's buy new tools. Let's invest in new capacities. Let's do all these things so we can build products because they're based on reality. And the rest of these guys, because they're so software driven, everything is quote unquote, well, we'll just kind of code it out and figure it out. And I think that's sort of the difference. Uh, that's just my gathering from an outside yeah. perspective. I always thought, or the way I understand it too, is that when he came back to Apple, one of the interesting things he did, when this would probably be really hard for Microsoft to do because they're so attached to Windows, is that he just started, literally started cutting every product line that wasn't selling. You know what I mean? Right. And, right. And it, that's hard to do in a big organization. You know what I mean? Well, but he's able to do that. And then you're all of a sudden like, okay, these things are gone. It's like, now what do we, you know, it's like, now we need to, you know, now we have our best people. 
on our resources on focusing on building something new that's going to really work. You know what I yes. mean? And yes. that makes sense, but I think that's like really hard. Uh, just the way I understand like organizations, big, you know, big place that can be really, really hard to do. You know, you're, you're fighting a lot of legacies, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, right. uh, and, but Hey, you know, that's, it really worked out well. And, you know, like it sounds like my, my, Microsoft seems like the kind of place where, you know, Bill Gates is like, you know, not that he's, you know, he's what he's, he's not necessarily a creative person per se. You know what I mean? <laughs> So he, he, he's not like the kind of boss that's going to walk into your, uh, your, your develop, you know, walk, walk into your team with the new ideas and be like, I've got this idea, I, I guess. And so it doesn't seem like, you know what I mean? Right. Right, right, right. I don't know. Just, that's just my own. I could be wrong. I just, uh, <laughs> well, we all speculate to the best of our abilities, but we have observational data to go with. So we'll, we'll, I, we'll tell everybody what we always tell them. It's like, Take what I say with a with a with a grain of sand on 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 Sunday, and with a bucket of salt during the week, right? Right. <laughs> so, what do you think is wrong with the field of economics? Oh man, this is like a massive subject. <laughs> uh, I mean, she brings out the best questions, right? <laughs> I mean, I just think it's like all wrong, and it's almost like they they don't even they've never they've never discovered any laws, so mm. it's like. You know, they they claim that they've figured some laws out, but once you you know dig down to the surface, you realize you know that they haven't. And it's like I'll give you a great example. There's this thing called the Phillips curve, which was like discovered in like the 60s, it was 60s I think, 50s, late 50s, 60s, something like that. And you know, the economists was like did some regressions basically. It was like, well, there's a trade-off between unemployment and wage growth and stuff, and you know, and it's sort of like you build the, you know, the regression and it has like a really nice straight line and so showing that there's some sort of dependency. Um, but it's just, you know, like in stats, like correlation isn't causation. So just because there's some correlation, it doesn't necessarily mean that that, you know, one's causing the other. And but instead they use other stuff like that and other stuff to sort of kind of shape their policy ideas. And then they find out 10 years later that that correlation just disappears. You know what I mean? <laughs> or, or, or it's just like not or it's so weak now that it's almost unreliable. And, you know, and then they just it's like in the financial crisis, they don't seem to ever think like, uh, you know, leverage could be a, a big problem. And, you know, so they miss that. And it's like, well, you look at leverage in the U.S., it's like it's so much higher than it was, you know, in, since the early 80s. So it's like, obviously, you know, leverage is dangerous and high levels of leverage. And they just don't, I don't know, they just sort of miss that. And and then they're just very uh, cavalier about, you know, using debt as like a growth mechanism, despite, you know, everybody knowing for the most part that, yeah, it's like getting a lot of debt is kind of risky. You know what I mean? It's, but, but, <laughs> of but course. They, they, but they seem to be heavily promoting this as just like a tool to get growth. And they don't seem to really uh, maybe it's the same thing because they don't have skin in the game and they're not, you know, washed out of near you know, that. Their ideas don't seem to get washed out. Um, they keep promoting things that don't really make sense. And I don't know. It's like everything else. They circle their bandwagons, I think, and, you know, try and protect the field, you know, so they don't look incompetent. And then the other thing is they're wrong about forecasting. You know, they 
you know, the tools they have, they use, you know, try to use econometrics of just this, you know, not really, uh, you know, telling us anything. And, and, and you think about in order to get growth, I mean, it's like what Hayek say, it's like the object, the object of economics is to like, you know, uh, spur men and spur men's imaginations about what they can uh, design. That's like, I'm par- that's not exact quote, but it's something, <laughs> something. But you think about it, so it's like, well, you know, we don't really know gro- what growth will look like next year. It really is ultimately dependent on, you know, what kind of uh, the money that entrepreneurs can get and turn and build new and profitable businesses, right? And we don't really right. know what, like, we have no idea of you know, what those businesses are going to be. You know, we, we didn't, no one, you know, you look at the, the internet, you know, in the night, probably early 1990s, there were plenty of people probably saying, oh, this thing is crap. It's never going to amount to anything. And then six years later, it's, you know, the potential of it is obvious. You know what I mean? But we just don't, you know, we don't we have any idea like what, uh, you know, what growth will look like. It really is mm. just dependent on, uh, people managing their risks properly and, you know, having some cap, some capital to work with and then building businesses that are sustainable and profitable. And, and that's, you know, not easy. Like look at, you know, look at, look, look at this week. There was a lot of, a lot of the unicorn, you know, tech stuff has been pulled back. Like we work and, you know, and all this other stuff. And it's like, Oh, these are big, socially big ideas and they just lose money like crazy. You know what I mean? It, it's just, so it's just hard to really know um, what's going to go on. And then most of the growth is sort of just uh, from, you know, the tail. Like Apple, I think as Apple got bigger and bigger, it was almost like, what, 1% or 2% of, like, the whole GDP of the U.S.? I don't know. It's a huge number. You know what I mean? Right. So you realize right. it's like one business and success story is really accounting for everything else and everything mm. else this is either small or doesn't work it's like it's like you walk watch shark tank and you think how many times like how many businesses are new businesses are pitched and they don't you know they don't make any money or they make small amounts of money you know what i mean right and then, right and then like and, and i think what they had that one business it was like the amazon bought it was like the ring the doorbell i think yes, yes. and you know, well that business is probably the equivalent of all you know every other company that they've ever sponsored combined you know what i mean so right, it's just right. one so you just have like one moonshot and it really you know represents like all the growth and they just don't i don't know they don't get that and they i don't know it's just like you could go on and on forever so <laughs> i was under the impression that supply and demand laws were pretty good is that also incorrect or is that that they extracted it beyond reason well, you get it. Okay. Well, you get in. I don't know. There's all sorts of. <laughs> when you get into supply demand, I think it gets more complicated because you get into like something like you know, Say's law. It's like, well, demand can create creates its own supply and stuff like that. So mm. I, I don't know. It's just what I think is just like most important though is just that you know it's all about like a few large scores. You know what I mean? That sort mm-hmm. of uh, really make everything work right. And you and you look at. Uh, you know, it's like you look at Facebook and I was like looking at their, you know, their earnings and stuff. And it's like, and then I was looking at like the, the largest like uh, mall REITs in the country, which are like real estate investment trusts. And you're like, I'm like, man, I think I was doing the math. And it's like Facebook earns as much profit as if you were to earn like, if you have like 700 million square feet of real estate. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you just, you just realize like, you know, just 
I don't know how how weird things can be and for economic growth and how big um, you know some things can turn out to be. You know what I mean? You're like, how can you own all that real estate and you're and you're just you're, you're one Facebook? You know what I mean? And but that you know that's that's reality. So. You know, what's interesting about that is when I when I look at that, I notice there's this weird trend um, that's really been around since uh, early 2000s that I could remember, which is this idea that everything is about market share, right? Uh, the only company I know that keeps track of the proper score, which is profits, is Apple. Everybody else's market share, market share, market share. Android's market share is this, and Samsung's market share is that, and, and Amazon's market share is this, and they're eating all that. And that's also an arrogant bet to the future that eventually they're going to turn that market share into profits. And it's not true. Yeah. It's consistently proven to be not true. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah. And, and I think too, like I always found, found Jeff Bezos strategy be sort of weird. It's like, we're going to lose money to pick up market share, but I'm like, I don't know. I just find that whole philosophy, like starting from that point seems mm. kind of weird to me. It's like, right. Why, like, why not focus on just making something that's going to make money? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Instead, it's like mm-hmm. this, it's like this war of attrition. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like we're going to wear you down until, you know, and then muscle in here. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. It's just, I, I don't think Steve Jobs approached growth, you know, stuff like that, which is like a different way of looking at it. But I don't know. I just don't. Yeah. It's like market share and market share, but I don't know. It's like a weird I, I say, you know, take more money and fail more often until you find like a great product rather than focusing on, you know, this game of, you know, gating market share and subtracting, you know, making, you know, keeping your profits low or whatever and stuff like that. Because mm. you think about Amazon, it's like, you know, on the retail side of it, I mean, essentially, it's like a very, very large Walmart that delivers. You know what I mean? Right. And, and you're kind of like, well, Walmart already has. It, it by revenue, you know, it does a lot of revenue, and and but by its profit margins, Camara's revenue are pretty small. You know what I mean? So it's a thin margin business. So you know, it's like you're gonna get into, you're gonna be Amazon, you're gonna get into that business. Like we're kind of attacking like a business that has thin margins. You know what I mean? Mm. Like on, on, I mean on the retails, I know like they've made more money in this AWS stuff, but you know, it just sort of seems kind of weird it's like i guess it's fashion you probably know better than me but it seems like it's fashionable in like the vc and the tech world to like disrupt existing businesses yeah but but, but like i don't i don't know if that's like and i'm not saying that isn't you know that, i'm not saying that's irrational but i don't know if that's maybe the best way to look at it you know what i mean like just you know it's like will we just go out and find existing businesses to attack mm. but i don't know like you see like a lot of attacking going on and think it's not really working very well you know yeah. like you haven't yeah. really been able to find like you know there just isn't enough there to disrupt you know these existing industries but i don't know i yeah. guess i guess i guess that is the way vc thinks i guess well i'll tell you i'll tell you what my take on that is and, and my take on that is first of all i blame uh clayton christensen and his uh yeah. his book on destruction <laughs> right so yeah, yeah. So that that's my first. I'm like, oh my god, everybody read that book and it turned it into their 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 you know modus operandi. But the, the bigger problem is this, right? So this again goes back to the ideas of complexity and Joe and, and all the guys is that there's a layer of redundancy missing from certain businesses. Now I'm not I'm not the kind yeah. of person who would bet against um, 
Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Yeah, but at, the same yeah. time, at the same time, though, I would never be a shareholder of their companies for one specific reason. Take away Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk tomorrow. Like, God forbid something happens to them or they just retire or whatever happens, right? They're no longer there. All the credibility of that stock is tied to, quote unquote, their founder, right? Yeah. And their founder missing. I don't think those companies survive that long because that, that, that whole uh, trust in the brand that they're pushing out there is so heavily tied to that founder. It's almost like a cult-like uh, approach to it. Whereas Apple has experienced that the first time when Steve was kicked out and the second time when he came back and he handpicked his, um, his uh, successor. Mind right. you, to this day, people are still doubting Tim Cook and his ability to deliver. And, and time will test that out as well. But, but I've also noticed Microsoft, right? Bill Gates had the perfect opportunity to hand-select his um, uh, successor. And I think to a large extent, he, he could have picked better uh, candidates. And, you know, uh, but these other companies, like you said, what, what really rubs you the wrong way, and uh, maybe, maybe I kind of uh, highlighted it better, but it, is that what happens to Amazon if Jeff is no longer the CEO and the founder, right? Do, do they still get this amount of slack from the market where they're giving them price to earnings ratio of a multiple of like what, a thousand sometimes? Once I saw it, I was like, it cannot be serious that you're going to give somebody a thousand to one price to earnings ratio on that multiple. Like that's insane, right? Two yeah. or three times. Yeah. Okay. Three times, nine times. Okay. A thousand. Now we're way out of, of reality here. And their assumption is once they dominate everybody, they will flip the, stri- the, uh, the switch and all of a sudden profits will start gushing in. And same thing with, with, with Google, this whole idea of, Oh, we'll just take moonshot. And it's because, and, and I've, and I've noticed this many, many, many times. I'm like, look, search was a human requirement that we all had innately it's built into us because we look for things mm-hmm. they just converted that into a digital form that everybody resonated with and they became dominant that's mm-hmm. fun that everything else that's lost money but yet for some reason they make so much money off that one business that it funds everything else whereas apple everything they do if it doesn't make money like you said they cut it they cut it loose right the watch makes money the phone makes money the ipads make money the store makes money the mac makes money the actual right. retail square footage I think the only thing they said per square foot that makes more money than Apple is the White House, for obvious reasons. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, it's interesting about Jeff Bezos, and I, I don't know. It's like you're right. I mean, he's the kind of person – You know, Amazon is such a goliath that it seems so complicated to me. Like all the – and they're in so many businesses and stuff. The good, mm. I mean, getting – you know, it's just like getting another CEO just to run that whole operation. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I agree with you. It would be, as a shareholder, kind of be, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, a risky proposition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> risky and all that. And, I don't know, and, and he probably is the kind of person who's, uh, I think, in the tech community is looked like, you know, is viewed as, as, a, as a Steve Jobs, I guess. So there's people, you know, think he's... You know, he has a big talent, and I don't know. You're right. It's I haven't, I haven't thought about that, but I don't know. It's just, I, think, I think Amazon is a sort of – I should talk about it because I don't trade it, and I don't want to, like, you know, be uh, mm. skin in the game. I don't want to get too much into, like, you know, seem, make it seem like I'm long or short it. But, you know, that's so – I'll just leave it at that. How about that? Yeah, no, and, and it's sort of like what I said, right? It's like I wouldn't bet against them, but I also don't right. bet on them for that right. very reason. Right. right. So, so, so we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But, um, uh, is there any other topics that you would like to, to touch on? Um, no, but I just want to say, I really, uh, appreciate, uh, you guys, the podcast and, 
I think I've looked at some of the other guests and I really want to get a chance to listen to everybody else who's been on it. And uh, I think it's just a really great idea what you guys have set up. And I uh, really appreciate you having me on, I guess. No problem. It was our pleasure to have you on. Um, uh, what we do have is um, uh, one last uh, set of fire questions that we're going to throw in your direction. Okay. Uh, we'll start with... Um, uh, Amber here, because she may have her uh, list that she usually goes through. <clears throat> yeah. Um, um, what kind of books would you recommend? What are your uh, top three? Oh, man. I, <laughs> I have, I like, I, I'm totally laughing, because if you came up to my place, I have probably like 400 books laying around. Oh, right wow. Now. <laughs> there's, I don't know. There's a lot of books. 400 is like maybe exagger- exaggeration, probably 300. But I don't know. You, okay. I'm a little behind on book reading lately only because I've been studying for this uh, risk management exam, but I'll tell you, uh, God, what have I been, I've been, um, I've been trying to fin- finish up the battle cry freedom, which is like a, just one of the major history books on the civil war. And mm. I've been really liking that. Um, I've been reading, uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas by, uh, mm. Hunter S Thompson. And mm-hmm. actually I've kind of enjoyed that just cause it's kind of, uh, it's kind of uh, an anachronism in some sense. You know, it was written in the early 70s, and you know now some of the stuff he's writing about seems sort of um, not that foreign. But when he was writing the book, it was like you know he was sort of a rebel against, I think, really stodgy, conservative, god, you know, heavy god people that were really, really, you know, conservatives that we're a little more powerful, uh, I think at that time than now. And now we kind of live in a world where it's almost like everybody wants to kill conservatives. So I think it's kind of funny when, you know, you kind of realize that there was a time when conservatives were really annoying to like this counterculture kind of people. And it's kind of a funky, funky take on that. I don't know why I just, it's, it's kind of funny, even though it's about a lawyer and, Hunter S. Thompson going to Las Vegas and doing a lot of weird drugs, but I don't know. It's kind of <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of fun. And then um, what else? What else would I would I recommend? Um, Life changing book. Well, it's just I don't know. This is so obvious, but I don't know. Read the Black Swan or read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, th- th- those are those are always my favorite nonfiction ones or Fool by Randomness or something. I think those are. You know, always good for people to read. So, well, you know what? Since you're you happen to be a, a, a fan of uh, history, uh, I, I, I'm sure you read this, but if you haven't, I, I always recommend this. It's, it's called "The Guns of August" by Barbara Tuckman. Yeah, I, I have, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I have "The Guns of August" uh, on my Kindle, and hmm. I haven't uh, had a chance to to read it, but. I guess that's pretty much like what the most well-known history book on World War One. I, I guess. So, yes, yes. And she and, does a fantastic job. I could not put the book down for the yeah. for fans out there who just like and you you start to sort of realize the the gears of war and how they sort of you know gain traction and and sort of the the pettiness of the people in charge and and you realize they're just human beings but they have a scale at their disposal that the likes of which we wouldn't have. And so you start to see it like, oh, my God, this is that much worse than, you know, war is bad. But you never really realize how petty and childish the origins of it are. And until you read these books and you're like, man, it's it's pretty it's just all everybody trying to prove themselves superior to everybody else. Right. She actually wrote a book that I have read before that was sort of on the origins, um, uh, 
you know, leading up to World War One, and she talks a lot about like the anarchist movement around mm. Europe and stuff, and there were some various assassinations going along, <laughs> and I think she tries to sort of trace that sort of anxiety back to, um, you know, the you know, the assassination with Franz Ferdinand and all that other stuff. Um, but they were kind of like all over Europe and kind of, and they were even in the U S too. Like the Chicago accident had a big thing called this Haymarket thing where there was like, I don't know if there was a bombing here or something. And then, you know, it, it was, but it was sort of, um, some really, really pissed off people, I think at the government. And, uh, mm-hmm. these movements were kind of spreading, I think, uh, in the West, and she kind of talks about a little bit about that, and then I think that's from there is when she gets into uh, the the Guns of August. So I don't know. That's just a little the, what I remember offhand. All right, right, right. Fair enough. Well, uh, we just want to uh, thank you, James, for coming on and sharing with us your uh, perspective, and we hope you uh, you had as much of, uh, fun as we did. I, I had a very good time. I really thank you for having me on. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any conversation worthy of having will inherently be a risky one. Thank you for listening. Stay anti-fragile and carry on the ancient tradition and your own unique way of saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Ember Sadat and Ace Deliri signing off, wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.